This is uh, the last installment of the Ask Anything series. My my hope is to get through the the four questions that I had left uh, coming into tonight. Uh, I'll do my best on that, though I certainly can make no promises. Um, but we will do what we can. It's been a good and entertaining series. I think hopefully it's been helpful for folks too, uh, not only to answer the specific questions, but also just to explore how do we how do we apply the Bible to difficult questions uh, where there's not just a simple one verse that explains it all and makes the makes the challenge go away. Uh, so our topics tonight are fairly eclectic. Uh, all right, I'm bringing it up so if anybody jumps in and sends questions, they can. All righty. So, and these questions are not in any particular order, so we shall see what we get through. So, first question, what should Christians believe about the death penalty? Does God not want this since only he can judge? This is an interesting and challenging question. It should be a challenging question, quite honestly. What I would say is if you think this is not a challenging question, I will encourage you to explore Scripture and the reality of the death penalty in the United States so that you are appropriately challenged. Um, if in the world of Christian ethics this is a, a sort of a hotly debated topic, there are very good Christian scholars and ethicists who, who come down on, on all different sides. I would say both sides, but there's really more than both sides uh, in the world of of uh, the discussion of capital punishment, specifically in the United States, from a Christian perspective. Um, so I'm hoping that uh, whatever we conclude or talk about tonight, that again, we probably aren't all going to agree. And if we don't, that's fine. We can do it in a way that is agreeable. And, and what I would suggest is I hope that as I walk through this, um, most people are challenged by this in some way uh, because, quite honestly, on difficult social and political issues, if the Bible isn't challenging us, we're probably not reading the Bible correctly because, you know what, the Bible does not follow a, a straight line of political theory or anything like that. So, quite honestly, as thinking Christians, wherever we come down on specific issues, unless several ones are extremely clear-cut in the Bible, um, we should be challenged periodically by uh, what the Bible teaches us. So, uh, some, some basic principles as we work forward. So, first of all, I think, and I hope we all would agree, right, we personally cannot kill someone, uh, no matter how justified, and I put that in quotes, it might seem to us, because biblically we are not the judge of people. Uh, we do not have the right to kill in that regard personally. However, I believe that God has clearly given governments broad authority to administer life and death on his behalf. And what I would point you to first off is Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Which I will read. Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. 
Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his authority, his approval. rather. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now, I want to be clear, Paul doesn't have rose-colored glasses and thinks every government is a just and wonderful government. I mean, he's in the Roman Empire. He understands that you know there are good times and there are bad times. And yet what he says is that governments in general have been put in place to serve a role by God, which includes avenging, uh, that governments bear the sword, right? And so what I would suggest is that in the abstract, you can make a strong biblical case that because of God's great love for humanity, because of the preciousness of human life, that God sanctions the death penalty for those who wrongly take human life through murder. That he has given the power of the sword to the government to be able to do that. I'm going to give you two Old Testament references, one that predates the Mosaic Law and explains the principle And then one, of course, from the Mosaic Law. And again, note what I said in the abstract. I believe that there's the case that God, in the preciousness of human beings created in his image, uh, he sanctions the death penalty for those who wrongly take life through murder. So I want to read to you Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. Right, this is part of God's, this is related to God's covenant with Noah. He says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Right? So if a, a person is killed, there will be a reckoning. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So this is the biblical principle, right? Because every human being is created in the image of God and is thus precious to God, there is a consequence for taking the life of another human being unjustly. Numbers 35, uh, verses 15 to 25, is is part of the Mosaic Law, and I believe, if I remember right, it's it's sort of laying out some of the, the principles of it. 35, and it's talking about cities of refuge, and it draws a distinction between accidentally killing someone and intentionally killing someone. These six cities shall be for refuge for the people of Israel and for the stranger and for the sojourner among them that anyone who kills any person without intent may flee there, right? Manslaughter, an accidental killing. But if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. And if he struck him down with a stone tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer should be put to death. Or if he struck him down with a wooden tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. 
The avenger of blood shall himself put the murderer to death, and when he meets him, he shall put him to death. And if he pushed him out of hatred or hurled something at him, lying in wait so that he died, or an enmity struck him down with his hand so that he died, then he who struck the blow shall be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. But if he pushed him suddenly without enmity or hurled anything on him without laying in wait or used a stone that could cause death and without seeing him dropped it on him so that he died, though he was not his enemy and did not seek his harm, then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood in accordance with these rules. And the congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he had fled and he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who is anointed with the holy oil. So there's a, a clear distinction between manslaughter, accidental killing, and intentional homicide uh, that, again, warrants the death penalty. And, uh, and so I think you kind of get the, the sense of the, the biblical principle here. Um, none of these is quoting the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but, but for those who, who think about that, just one thing to, to note on that, we... We often throw that out there, or it's often referred to as sort of a barbaric thing, but, but in truth, in those days, the eye for an eye standard was meant to restrain uh, violence, actually. It was to keep people from out-of-proportion punishment, because prior to the, the principle of an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, uh, you could be executed for very trivial things. But, but anyway, so it's the abstract principle. But here's the thing. We don't live in the abstract, and this is where where if you've been going right on all the way through with what I've said at this point, it's time to, to have a little bit of a challenge. We don't live in the abstracts. And so this is where the death penalty, as it is practiced in the United States, regardless of whether you are philosophically in favor of it or opposed to it, it should trouble us greatly as Christians. Because as followers of a just God, we are supposed to seek justice, we are supposed to work for justice, and if you look at the numbers in the United States, if you kill somebody, and I hope none of you will, but if you kill somebody, your odds of getting the death penalty are dramatically higher if you are African American, lower income, or less educated. Right? Those three factors strongly alter the outcome of your court case. The reality of the way the death penalty and capital crimes are handled in the United States is that if you're able to afford a competent attorney, your chances of being executed are very low. If you have a public defender, your odds are very high. They're much greater. And when I say if you have a competent attorney, a decent capital murder defense costs about $190,000. If you don't have $190,000 lying around or you don't have access to $190,000 to where you wind up with a public defender, your odds of receiving the death penalty for exactly the same crime that someone else who does have access to $190,000 are very different. It's difficult to look at the statistics in the United States and say that the system that we currently have and the way it is handled is just or provides equal protection under the law, right? And so that's why, regardless of whether you come down, right, this is not saying you should be for it or should be against it, but as Christians, we should be troubled, right? If we are Christians who, who support it in principle, 
we should be troubled by the way it's practiced in the United States. And obviously, if you're opposed to it, you're troubled by definition, by the way that it's practiced. But if you're opposed to it, I would encourage you that there is a biblical practice that says there, there ought to be a way to achieve some justice in this topic. Uh, so that was quick, I understand, but we do have limited time tonight. I'm probably not going to throw that one out to the, to the broader discussion just because I want to try and respect the four questions that I got and try and get through at least three of them um, tonight. Uh, that was probably the most complicated. And then hopefully we'll at least have a minute at the end to take a few questions, and then we can always talk afterwards. Um, so the choir is setting up. So that was, the, that was a heavy one. Now we have a, a lighter one, I think, at least lighter in tone. Uh, the question was, I know it's not Christ-like to curse, but can you go to hell for cursing? Uh, well, my answer on that is the Bible is very clear about what should be coming out of our mouths. Uh, so I'll see if I get to uh, go to all the passages. I'll start with Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. which says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And skip forward a few verses to chapter 5, verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Or we go to Colossians chapter 3, verse 8 which says, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And then there's always Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, which is unfortunately very convicting for those of us who drive on I-95. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Hence my concern in traffic. There are plenty of other verses, right? Obviously the most famous, you know, most famous don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Um, lots of proverbs about the kinds of things that come out of our mouth. Right? I, think, I think there's a pattern here, a clear pattern of teaching, which is that as followers of Jesus Christ, what needs to come out of us is, is good and, and edifying and, and not cursing. Um, but I'll say it's difficult, right? particularly for those who are not raised in the church. Because right? if you're raised in the church, you, you probably are you know, used to towing the line and and whatever, verbally, and so you have good habits. If you weren't raised in the church, if you've had a lot of exposure to secular culture, maybe in high school or college, um, you know, it, it gets, you, you form some habits that are very hard to, to break, right? Very, very hard to break. And so, what do you do? And what I would suggest is uh, you recognize that talking in this way as much as our culture just accepts it and embraces it, really is a sin. And then that means we need to do what we're supposed to do when we sin, right? Confess it and ask God's forgiveness, and He is always faithful to forgive. 
We need to make a conscious effort to change. I would encourage people to get others to to help them change by pointing out every time they slip up, which will get real annoying, but will probably do the trick. Um, I would encourage people to walk in the Spirit, that as you cultivate your spiritual life, uh, you really will be changed over time into the likeness of Christ. It, it really will, right? If you take this seriously, it really will become less and less a part of who you are and, and less and less a part of how you feel you need to talk. Um, I would certainly encourage everyone to pray who struggles with this um, to pray regularly for God to cleanse our heart and our mind of the uncleanness inside us that causes it to come out. See, Jesus has some some tough teaching for those of us who who do, you know, have uh, anyone here among us, right, who does have a, a problem with the words that come out of our mouth, and we think it's not that big a deal, Well, Jesus in chapter 15 of Matthew, starting in verse 10, says some stuff that's very sobering. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone, they are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So if we have a problem with what's coming out of our mouth, right, whether that is anger, whether that is lying, whether that is cursing, as in the case of the question, there's a problem here. And we need to embrace that. And we need to ask forgiveness, but we also need to ask for cleansing. That God would just get in there and and scrape that thing clean. And my final sort of encouragement on that, you know, a bit of advice, is to replace those words with God's words, right? So uh, Colossians 3.16, the final verse on this question. Um, which says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God, right? So Paul frequently introduces something that many of us call the replacement principle, that it's hard to get rid of something bad without replacing it something good. Paul frequently uses language of put off and, and put on, you know, put off this and put on that. So same thing, right? If you want to get rid of, if you want to crowd out the ugly words that are coming out of your mouth, you need to have the word of God coming out of your mouth. So... Have spiritual conversations. Learn to sing great hymns or songs or radio songs or things like that 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 get good things coming out of your mouth. Okay. Again, I'd love to have a conversation on that, but I have five minutes. I have two questions. Good news is if you're on Facebook, you can watch the recording and go back for anything you missed. Third question. 
Explain the Bible's teaching on forgiving others being necessary to be forgiving. Okay, this might have been a big question, actually. Um, this is, I think, highlighting from Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, right after the Lord's Prayer. Um, where Jesus says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Okay, this is interesting, slightly distressing. should be more than slightly distressing in one sense, because we're not always quick to forgive other people, right? How does this teaching of Jesus square with our understanding that we are saved by grace through faith alone? Right, if we are saved by grace through faith alone, it doesn't say we're saved by, by, by grace through faith and, and forgiving other people through faith alone. So how do I square this teaching of Jesus with the clear teaching throughout the New Testament of salvation by grace through faith? I think we can get a lot of insight from a parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. frequently called the parable of the unforgiving servant. And this is one for us to always, always remember. It's good for us to read this one often. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, 10,000 talents is like millions of dollars, right? So I understand Jesus is using a very exaggerated amount for this, right? Nobody could ever owe, only a government could owe people this kind of money. Humans cannot. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Which, of course, he can't. It's impossible. No one can ever pay 10,000 talents worth of money. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii. Okay, it's about three months' salary. Not an inconsiderable amount, but compared to millions and millions of dollars, it's nothing. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So, we can get, I think, a lot of insight from this story on how do we reconcile the teaching of salvation by grace through faith alone with the necessity of forgiving others if God is going to forgive us. So, taking from this, this parable, I would take... Four lessons, quick takeaway, four lessons for tonight. There's more we could plumb out of it in a different time. But one, our sin is much, much worse than we usually think it is. Right? 
We're the one who owes the 10,000 talents, and it's forgiven us by God. We don't usually think of our sin as being a 10,000 talent, a millions and millions of dollars kind of sin, but it is. Every sin is a rebellion against the good God who created the universe, who is perfect and holy and righteous and just, and our sin is a lot worse than we think it is, right? We want to be more concerned with other people's sin. No, ours is the worst. Just assume that. Lesson two, God fully and freely forgives our sin by his grace, right? We do nothing to earn it. We have nothing that we can't pay it back. We, we can't do anything other than beg, and he gives it to us because he is gracious and merciful. Lesson three, what people have done to us is far, far less bad than what we've done to God by our rebellion. And lesson four, if we don't really understand God's grace sufficiently well that we are willing to extend grace of our own to anyone asking our forgiveness, then perhaps our faith isn't actually faith. Right? We either are believing the wrong thing or we don't believe at all. It's a hard lesson. But real faith, genuine faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, means that we have come to grips to the greatest extent that we can with the just horrible reality of our sin and what a debt we owe to God that we could never pay and that he has forgiven it. And therefore, we should be the first people ready to forgive anybody who comes genuinely asking for forgiveness, right? So we have to we have to take the business of forgiveness very seriously when they genuinely ask it, right? I'm not talking about a, a meaningless, thoughtless, oh, I'm real sorry, but I'm not going to say it for what. I mean, but when somebody is genuinely sorry for what they've done to you, our willingness to forgive reflects our understanding of how much we understand how much we've been forgiven. And I think that's how you reconcile the words of Jesus. Because if we're unwilling to forgive someone else, it means we don't understand what we've asked God to forgive us. It means we haven't taken responsibility for what we've asked God to forgive us. So that's not real faith. The final question, and, and sadly, i got to really gloss over it. I'm not, I don't even think I'm going to go into the details. I'll just leave you hanging probably. The last question was, do Christians have to be baptized? See Mark 16, 16. The short answer is no and yes. No, uh, I'll give you just the highlights. The thief on the cross was not baptized, but he was clearly saved. Uh, this very day, you shall be in paradise with me. He did not hop off the cross, get a baptism, and then get back up. Uh, Romans 10, 9 through 10 does not say believe, confess, and be baptized to be saved. It just says believe and confess. So very literally, the answer is no. However, the clear example of Scripture is that it is clearly expected that every follower of Jesus Christ will be baptized and generally pretty quickly. They will follow the example of Jesus, who himself was baptized. If you read Romans 6, 3, and 4, which I will not read because I'm going to make choir late, it clearly assumes our baptism as believers because it's describing how we have identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in baptism. If we have not been baptized, we have not identified ourselves with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission commands the church to baptize believers. And the book of Acts over and over again describes immediate baptism upon profession of faith. So, if you've accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, you will and should want to be baptized as an act of obedience, confession, and symbolic identification with Christ. 
So in that case, the answer is yes. So you don't have to be baptized to be saved, but you do have to be baptized. No and yes. All right. So we're in overtime, but I don't see like a big crowd of choir people like coming at me. So if anybody's got questions on any of the four topics, uh, no, I'm kidding. All right, the choir people are here, but um, I'll take two questions uh, and then. Yeah. I have not been out there yet. Yeah, I would like to get out there one time. Yeah, because it's not too far from my house, actually. Yeah, I owe him some books and materials that I got to take back to him anyway. So, so this summer, as the schedule calms down, I expect to spend some time with him. Thank you. All right, sounds good. That's it. Yeah, and I think they do it in the morning, right? It's like ten or something like that, or eleven. Yeah. 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 All right. Yes, one question, and then I'm going to get, like, shot by the choir. Yes. Yes. So, yeah, that's a very complicated question. Uh, uh, very Different people come with different approaches. I, I mean, I am one who believes that there's at least one portion of forgiveness that sort of depends on the person asking forgiveness. Um, there's a model I like which sort of describes a vertical aspect of forgiveness and a horizontal aspect. The vertical aspect is that, that you're willing to turn your anger, your bitterness, your hurt, your sorrow over to God um, in a posture in which you're willing to forgive. Um, even, you know, you know, basically say to God that, you know, you forgive them and, and in their name. I think for genuine healing and reconciliation to take place, there also has to be that horizontal forgiveness where they come and ask forgiveness and you give it. But that doesn't always happen in life. But I believe that if you can offer the vertical part of forgiveness where you can turn it over to God and, 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 and really let go of that, it can prevent the bitterness, the anger, the hurt from turning into a, a terrible scar in your own heart. Um, and so I think we have to try and practice the vertical forgiveness uh, as you know, quickly as we can. That's not so much salvific, I think. That's you know, more of how do you avoid that root of bitterness that Scripture says don't let grow in your heart um, you know, when they never come and ask. Because it does happen. Yeah. Yes. In the case of baptism, yes. Again, thief, of, thief of the cross did not hop down and get baptized. Yes. Uh, yeah. You definitely don't need it for salvation. Exactly. exactly. That, that's a vertical piece. God can work in our hearts. Exactly. It is poison if you let bitterness into your heart and leave it there. So, unfortunately, I do need to wrap us up because choir does need to practice. Um, so let me just close with prayer. Father God, it has been an awesome journey this whole uh, season from September to now. I thank you so much for our times together on Wednesday night. Uh, it really is a great joy and delight. Uh, I just pray for all of us as we, again, scatter for the summer. Just watch over us spiritually, guide us and guard us, bring us back in the fall. Uh, as we look forward to a, a great session uh, where we get to just uh, think and meditate upon you and your astonishing attributes, Lord. Uh, so I just ask you to bless all here and those who could not be with us tonight. 
uh, until we come back together again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.